message for this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. going to back up just a few verses to read so we have our, our context and so we can understand who these people are that we're talking about. What I want you to do is take a placeholder, bookmark, um, keep it there, and then turn to Genesis chapter 14. And we're actually going to begin reading there. Because the people who read Hebrews chapter 7 would have had this possibly memorized. So um, before we go to his word, let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you that once again you've given us a time to come together and listen to your word proclaimed as we dig into your word, as we pr pray for your spirit to, to bring us new understanding and new application and that you would help us to see who we are in you and how we might draw near to you and, and what that means for us. So help us to see and rise from here more worshipful, knowing that we have access to our very Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. And as we pray in your holy name, amen. So Genesis chapter 14. And we begin reading in verse 9. There's a bunch of kings. There's nine kingdoms that are uh, have battling against one another. And you can go back and read a little bit and see the context of that. But what we find happening here when we get to nine, Chitter Laramore, who was the main king, and these guys are all rebelling against him. Um, king of Elam... Tidal king of Goyim, Armraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so they've been defeated and they're fleeing, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Solomon, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So just a few things to note here. We have this um, character Melchizedek, which we all know who he, what we know about him is this. He's not mentioned anywhere else except in a psalm and in Hebrews. But this is what we know. And there's lots written about, well, then who was he? Was he? It's like, stop it. Okay? You don't know. Leave it alone. There are things in the Word of God that he hasn't revealed, and we're supposed to not dig deeper than that. And there's speculations we can make, but we don't know who he was. It's part of the point. If not, one of the main points is that we don't know who this is. Abram somehow knew him. We're not told exhaustively everything about Abram's life. So surprisingly, there are people that Abram knows that we know nothing about. So he knows about this Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us some things about him. So I won't um, go over it twice. But one of the things that we do notice about him is in verse 18. This Melchizedek, king of Salem... Um, which it is in another place. We see that this most likely is Jerusalem before it's called Jerusalem. And uh, it's, this king is in Jerusalem. So imagine this. God has a king in Jerusalem even before um, Abraham. God has a priest in Jerusalem ministering it to his name before he's even given the promises to Abraham. So this is quite a remarkable thing. But we aren't told any more about it than this. But he also brings out bread and wine. And so in our minds, we see this today, and we go, communion. And it's true, somewhat. We don't want to press this too far, because when he was not bringing out the bread and wine and saying, this is my body, which is given for you, this is my, the blood of the new covenant. But what one did was, when a king came out to greet another king, he brought out bread and wine, and this was reserved for kings. He didn't just typically go around and have a bunch of bread and wine you know, on you. He went out, this king went out and served another king, which is a big deal. And I'm calling Abram a king, which technically he's not carrying that title, but he's acting in that capacity. But... It is a, and a tremendous act of honor and condescension on Melchizedek's part to come out with bread and wine. So as we see our God do this for us, we can't miss the amazing blessing that it is when he comes to meet us with blessing, with bread and wine. And he was a priest of God Most High, El Elyon, the God most high and then it turns to psalm 110 i'm telling you i think people keep moving the books around in my bible psalm 110 the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Part of it is because of how often it's used in the book of Hebrews. But this is the second time, and it's all the way up now we are to King David. 
So from Abraham, we've had all the things that happened with him and Joseph, and um, we get to Moses, and then we get to David, and so this is a long time after, and then David, prophesying in the Holy Spirit, writes this psalm, and instead of the capital L-O-R-D, I'll say Yahweh, Yahweh said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, and Jesus asked, and he says, if David calls him Lord, how is he existing before him and so this is a messianic psalm this is a psalm that points to jesus christ this psalm is talking about jesus christ so yahweh says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool then yahweh sends forth from zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies this is a kingship then, verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And these garments were provided by Christ himself. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn, this is what we're going to see in verse 7, he's taken this oath. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn, and he will not change his mind, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now when you're reading this psalm before the New Testament is out, lots of speculation again. What does this mean? Who is this talking about? Is this talking about some future king? And he's going to be a priest. And it's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see in Hebrews 7 why this is important. And in verse 5, the Lord, Adonai, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is talking about Christ and what will ultimately happen to evil, as we see, the work of a king is to defeat all of his and our enemies. He protects us. He rules over us. But the king has this role, which is why when you see David and Goliath, um, there's a minor point possibly to be made that we need to face our giants and things like that. But the big point about the David and Goliath story is where's Saul? Saul is supposed to be out there defeating that uncircumcised Philistine who's blaspheming the name of God and instead he's hiding and waiting for somebody else to go fight him that is not what God's king is supposed to do and then David little David shows up and says he recognizes how horrific this situation is and he says who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's blaspheming the people of God and they explain it to him and he's like I'll go. That's your king. That's your king. That's the type of Jesus Christ who says nobody can do it. I'll go. That's our king. And we have to remember this. Then when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to introduce this by beginning in chapter 6, verse 13. And the author of Hebrews tells us, For when God made a promise to Abraham... And this is speaking of the Abrahamic promise um, that there will be a great nation. There will be many people come from his 
from his line, and he be the father of the faithful. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, we are going to see, he's making this why I want us to go back, because there's another oath that God has made, and this is what we're going to see here as well. So that by two unchangeable things, but which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Hebrews' minds would have said Psalm 110. Genesis 14. And their minds would have started, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. And maybe they already had understandings of this in some way, but it hasn't been revealed in the New Testament until this point that we're talking about Jesus Christ here. They're being persecuted, and they're hearing this great message of who Jesus Christ is. And so this passage that we're seeing this morning continues the theme of hope because this is what people needed. They're going through difficult times. We'll all go through difficult times. Um, I've heard, seen somebody else say it, and I'll say it myself, that there's one more commercial on TV that begins by saying, as we go through these difficult times, it's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Welcome to the party, ladies. You know, we are aware that this life, you will go through difficult times. And I hate to break it to you, but this ain't the most difficult time the world's ever been through. Which doesn't mean it's not difficult. But God says there's a hope. And he also makes us think. There enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We're talking tabernacle. We're talking where God dwells. We're talking about where the sacrifices were done. We're saying if you aren't in the mosaic covenant then you're cut off you're 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 not a part of god's plan and now they've been cut off from the synagogue because they're worshiping jesus christ and the jewish people the scribes and the pharisees and the priests who haven't been converted are all saying nope out this is heresy this is blasphemy they're still clinging to saul and david has arrived And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, the Holy Spirit through this passage is telling them and us that we have a king and a high priest. And that this, this is going to give us great hope. Verse 7, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. In other words, Abraham tithed to him. He gave him a tenth. And when you tithed, you did not tithe, you know, hey, you remember those raggedy things we got? Get, get those and let's give them to him. You didn't do that. That was, that was terrible. You got the best. And you gave him the best. It's all the way back to, to Cain and Abel. And I don't believe the problem with Cain's sacrifice had anything to do with what he was sacrificing. A grain offering was also acceptable to God. Um, but he, he did it begrudgingly. He didn't give it to him out of a, of a good heart. And the New Testament tells us this about giving. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful, cheerful giver. I can't even get the words out. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. So what do you do? I, I agree with John Piper on this. I don't feel like giving. So you know, one response is, then don't be like that. Now, the second is, don't be like that. Give. Pray for the joy to come. And for those of you in here who never give, shame. Shame, I say. <laughs> I love all of you. Okay? My hands cling too tightly to my stuff too. But you have to let it go. And it begins with a hesitation. And you have to do it because God has commanded it. I'm not saying, just you know what I mean. This is, as a pastor, speaking on behalf of God, on a sensitive subject, it doesn't come up much in Scripture, but it's all over Scripture. And here it is one more time. Examine your heart when it comes to giving because a, a heart that doesn't want to give has some bad problems. And it's fear or it's anger or resentment or something. And there have been many people in my life over time who have taught me to give and how to give. I am not a natural giver. But I've become more like that, and I want to talk about myself here, but the more it gets to be a habit like everything else, and you will be blessed in it. So, Abraham gives him a tithe of all this stuff that he just won himself. And what he's saying is, because Melchizedek represents God, I didn't get it. God granted this. I'm acknowledging God as owner of it all by giving a tenth. So that's what we do when we give. We acknowledge God's ownership over it all. I don't agree with the saying that says, you know, 10% belongs to God, the rest of it belongs to us. I'm not even sure about the percentages stuff. It's, it's so complicated and we'll start doing math and cheat God or ourselves out of something. You just want to give because it all belongs to him. What's left over belongs to him. You belong to him. The money belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. If you don't see that it can all be gone like that, wake up and look around. One thing God's doing is saying, see the fragility of life. The fact that you have existence at all. Think about this. How many children do you have? Because in order for you to have as many children as you currently have, you probably had to have at least four times more because that many of them would have died before they made it to this age. Imagine what it was like for life so long ago when most likely your child died. That's what a blessed time we live in. Be thankful for that. He is first by translation of his name. King of righteousness, Melchizedek. Melech means king is Hebrew. Melech is king of Zedek, is righteousness. Melech, Zedek, God, king of righteousness. 
And then he's also king of Salem, Shalom. Okay, we know that word, and it's derived from, that is king of peace is translated. So when we see this word Shalom, and the idea behind peace is much deeper than just peace. It has to do with stillness and quietness and ease and gentleness and all of these things. It's a, it's a everything sort of working like it's supposed to, that sort of sort of thing, so that even when things aren't going as they ought, my heart goes as it ought as I follow him. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, so he's not saying here that Melchizedek didn't have a mom and daddy. What he's saying is, as far as the priesthood goes, you got nothing. And to be a priest under Moses, you had to have a genealogy. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You had to be of Aaron's line. You had to be, um, the Levitical priesthood had to be traced back through your genealogy. There was nobody outside of the Levitical tribe that could be a priest. There's King Uzziah, who was not of, of the tribe of Levi, who was a king in Israel, and he took upon himself a priestly duty, and God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. And when the priest came to him and said, this, you don't do that. So for Christ to be the king, and not of the Levitical tribe, but he's of the tribe of Judah, which we'll see in a second, um, you don't do that unless God does that. And so this is what we're going to see. So he doesn't have this genealogy. He doesn't have beginning of days. And, he, does, and he, he goes on forever. And so one of the things, the two that we need to know about the, the priest, I think I have my paper where I wrote down these ages, but at the age of... You know, why do I take notes if I'm, if I'm not going to bring them? At the age of, what is it? I think it's at 25, you enter into the priesthood and you can begin to um, serve the other priest. At the age of 30, you begin your priestly ministry, the duties, sacrificial systems. It's not um, insignificant that Jesus begins his priestly ministry at the age of 30. And then at the age of 50, that's it. You retire. And... Um, but Melchizedek, there was no beginning to when he started, and there's no end to when he starts. He's just as the priest. And this is the same thing we're going to see about Jesus Christ, who continues forever as a priest. He was not limited by his genealogy. He's not limited by time. And this is very important for us because we need a priest. And where are they? And we believe in the priesthood of believers, but not in this particular way. Where is our sacrifice? Where is our hope? Where, what do we do with our sin? The law, well, we'll get to it. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham was the most famous, revered man in Israel to the Jewish people. Now, Moses is held in high esteem too, but Abraham even more than that because he's the patriarch. To him, the covenant, the promises were, were given. And he gives him a tenth. And the descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these, are, these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him 
who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you had fathers that would bless their children. You didn't have the children that could, could do the reverse. And so here we have the superior, the one that's higher up, and the one that's lower down. So you see, Melchizedek was superior to Abram, which is amazing. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So in other words, that's the thing about the ages. Melchizedek... We aren't told of his death. Surely he died, but there was not an age at which he no longer could serve as priest. And now Jesus dies, but he's resurrected and continues as priest, and his life is indestructible in the power of his resurrection. So he continues as priest. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now, in case they missed it, he directly quotes Psalm 110 and says, this is him, Jesus Christ. God is the one who swore by an oath and made him a priest. Jesus didn't take this upon himself. God the Father appointed him long before, during the time of David, as a priest. Verse 18, on the one hand, former, the, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. We're going to look at that in a second. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For they, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So let's go back and look at verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek? So first, the people received the law through the priest. 
They didn't, the way that we might would think of that isn't that the law is being revealed by the priests, but the literal way of interpreting this is to say they, they, became, they were legalized by the priest. The people became legalized. That God, that the, through the priest, the law was applied. So that's how you knew that you had done things right. That's how you knew that your sacrifice was acceptable. That's how you knew that this guy could be a priest. That's how you These are how these things were applied and how the sacrifices were given and how the people became, they received the law, in other words. Okay? But if, it had, if perfection had been attainable through the priest, there wouldn't have been a need for another one. So as we look at this idea of perfection, this is the word we've been talking about a lot lately, and it's um, teleo, teleosis, which is the word telo, which is where, where tetelestai comes from, Jesus on the cross saying it is finished. Um, it's that idea of it has been perfected. It's come to a completion. This is the purpose for it all, and here it is. So when it says here, now, if the end had been attainable, if the if the, the goal of it all had been attainable. And what was the goal of it all? And the goal of it all was that men would be righteous, that people would be perfect, that you would be holy. But the law could not produce that. Neither could the Levitical priesthood give that to you in any way. All it could do is to sacrifice and offer you some vision, physical tangible sign from God as to how your sin will be dealt with. It's either by your death or by substitute, which is why when God made the covenant with Abraham, he killed animals and passed between the pieces himself. Because when you cut a covenant, what you did was you killed the animals, you passed between the pieces saying, whoever breaks that covenant, this is what's going to happen to us. God cannot lie. God cannot be undone. Therefore, his promises will stand. But the Levitical priesthood, all they could do is keep slaughtering the animals, as God told them to do. Spill the blood. Accept the sacrifices. Over and over and over every year, the Day of Atonement, they would do it again for the sins of all the people. They first had to offer a sacrifice for themselves, which if that sacrifice wasn't actually producing righteousness it was just allowing them access then they were sacrificed for the people and every year it had to be done again and again and again so is it not working you know and if you think about it it's like why during these difficult times are we told to wash our hands so much can't if if there was a soap that was good enough couldn't you just wash your hands one time and that's it? I mean, what is wrong with soap? And the thing is, it's like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with soap, except you keep getting your hands dirty again. So you have to keep going back, and you have to keep going back, and you have to keep going back. Now, the analogy falls in this. When we go to Christ to be cleansed, we're cleansed. We're cleansed. That's what baptism is. Cleansed by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need to sacrifice himself again. He did it once. That was enough. We go back to him again and again, not to get cleansed of our sin, not to get forgiven and forgiven again, but to go back to him to be strengthened, to go back to him to be reminded, to go back to him to see again that if it were just us, our hands are filthy 
dirty. But it's not on that basis. It's that when we stand before God, we're clothed in his righteousness. When we stick our hands in the virus, I don't even know where this analogy is going to go, but you're clothed in, it's like it can't, it's like off. <laughs> Remember the commercial says so do it off, but a guy would stick his hand in all the mosquitoes and the mosquitoes would get all over him and then he'd spray off on it and stick it in there and the mosquitoes wouldn't get. That's a commercial. That's how you do it. You demonstrate it. That's why, I don't know how many of you have seen that, but that's why a lot of people believe in off. It works. So with God, it's like that. He has sacrificed for sin so that when we now get in it, it doesn't stick to us. It doesn't stick to us. But what he does say, you can get easily entangled in it, that it can become habits in your life that can cause you to draw far from God and never even be able to have fellowship with him and have missed so much in your life because you're not living in the forgiveness that's his it's like you have off and you won't go somewhere because there's mosquitoes it's like go man that analogy are so bad in so many ways but i shoot with analogies from the hip sometimes i shoot from the hip with analogies at times but knowing that we have the forgiveness of god we need to be more bold in our witness we need to be more bold in our prayers we need to be more bold in our lives we need to be more bold um, daring to go into places where our lives may be forfeit daring to speak truths that may cause us to be hated by the world and if you don't see how that could happen today then wake up again um, but you know what's man gonna do to us we have to stand before our God and he's given us a sacrifice for our sin so we won't have to stand before him and deal with our sin we'll stand before him and deal with what'd you do with everything I gave you I gave you all this stuff what'd you do with it it's like all right so you know it's just it's, it's I don't think well, I think too many of us are worried about what it's gonna look like when God we stand before God in shame and I think the only thing that we should be is we're hidden in Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness what we should be concerned about is how well done is the well done part a good and faithful servant how much you know reward will there be for the things we've done in the body whether it was a faith or it was not a faith so you know living this Christian life on the basis of what God has done for us because of this priest that we have in verse 15 it becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal acquirement so in other words God has made him the priest now when you go to verse 22 this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant so Jesus because he's the priest there's a change in law the priests are the ones who are in charge of the law there's a new priesthood and there's a new law and so the new law is, it's not that the moral law is gone. The moral law is an expression of the mind of God, expression of the heart of God. It's the, the moral character, if you will, of God and Jesus. And so when you see the Ten Commandments, it summarizes the law. This is what love looks like. How, when it's expressed towards God and it's expressed towards neighbors. So to say that the Ten Commandments, the moral law no longer stands, is like saying you don't have to love anybody anymore. You can hate. And that's not what the law says that's not what God says but he guarantees this better covenant and it's better because 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And so consequently, he is able to save. And they could just enter it. They could just stop the sentence there. Therefore, he's able to save. But he's able to save to the uttermost. I mean, think about that. He is not just able to save, which to the uttermost. This wants to add this idea. He's able to save to the uttermost. And who is he able to save? Those who draw near to God through him. So you may think you're drawing near to God apart from Christ, but you're not. You're drawing near to an idol, which is probably just yourself. But those who draw near to God through Christ, he can save to the uttermost because Christ always lives to make intercession for them. So if he's pleading for you, you've messed up, you've sinned, you've done something, and then you go to the Father through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is there saying, my blood paid for those sins, whatever punishment is required of that person, I've already paid it. Listen to him. And then the Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Read Romans 8. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, such a high priest, holy. This is Jesus. He's innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so we're talking about hope. And again, verse 19. We have a better hope through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. What was not? The better hope. So we have this better hope through which this hope we draw near to God. But if we look at verse 25, we see that those who draw near to God through Christ are saved to the uttermost. So our hope is Jesus Christ. And you have to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You can't get to God the Father except by going through Jesus Christ. It is absolutely the only way. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Have you drawn near to God through Christ? Do you know Christ? If you don't know Christ, if you're not hidden in Christ, if you're not of Christ, you may have prayed and done all sorts of things, but it is not God the Father to whom you have drawn because you can't even get to him except through Christ. So get rid of these blasphemous ideas that other religions can lead to, lead to God the Father. Not, the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you don't believe the Bible, and that's your prerogative. It'll send you to hell, but it's your prerogative. Only through Jesus Christ do you have access to the Father. And since we have access to the Father, draw near to Him. And over and over through Hebrews is what we see. Don't neglect it. Draw near. Pull yourself closer. Cling to this hope that we have in heaven. It's in Jesus Christ. And so what does it mean to be able to draw near to God through Jesus Christ? 
And it means that if I'm going to God the Father, I've got to go through Jesus Christ. It means I need to be able to, I need to know Jesus Christ. I need to be able to say that I am following him. And, and that what Jesus did, the way Jesus got to the point of being the priest that was promised by God, but in order for him to be able to get us in to see God the Father is because of his sacrifice. Verse 30, 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's why we don't believe in the Roman Catholic Mass, which is a re-sacrifice of God. No, Jesus, one time, once for all, when he offered up himself for the law, appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But when the word of the oath, Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He has to tell us died forever. He has been made perfect. And that's our priest. That's the one we go to. That's the one we're supposed to follow. That's the one who tells us the way you get to God the Father is through suffering. The way you get through God the Father is by taking up your cross and following me. He doesn't say, now you live a perfect life. Follow me by living a perfect life and then you will attain the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've already seen the Father. If you're in me, you have the Father. If you will take up your cross die to yourself and follow me trust in christ pray to christ pray to god the father through the holy spirit in the name of jesus christ read the bible and see where jesus is are you living like christ we are living in strange days and nothing else could be said about our days we can say they certainly are strange and we have no idea what the next day may hold. Maybe there's a great revival and we get to walk around all giddy and just excited about how the churches are packed and people are singing and people are praising God and people are daily coming to the Lord in tears and repentance. Or we live in a day when it gets all whittled down. Um, it's no longer popular or safe to actually read the Bible, I mean, study history. It's one of the first things that happens is they will come for us. They will come for us. And your vote is not going to stop it when they come for us. Don't think some political party is going to save you. Don't cling to your guns. Cling to your faith. Cling to your hope. Cling to your Bible. Cling to Jesus Christ. And speak the truth to a bunch of heathen, pagan people who need to repent of their sin and are loving it and think you are the ones who are evil. That's the days we're arriving at. And how are we going to capitulate? Where are we going to soften the message? Because they know right where we soften it. And that's where they're going. They know right where to hit us. And it's first in our lack of love. In the lack of love that we have for our enemies. That's where it is. And who are our enemies? Oh, let's just name them. And don't sit there and say, I have no enemies, liar. You don't understand what an enemy is then. And you don't understand what love is. The way we have treated homosexuals is sinful. In a lot of different ways. It will be more sinful to tell homosexuals that it is 
not a sin. You're going to have to figure out also a big problem with us is the biblical illiteracy of Christians. Because there are a lot of very biblical, literate non-Christians who will rip you to shreds when you start quoting Leviticus on what should happen to homosexuals. Oh, yeah? Well, are we also supposed to kill your child who's talking back to you? Because the Bible says you do. You can't, you can't wear polyester blends. The Bible says you can't do it. What are you going to do with that? You don't know. Because what some of you do, some of you don't. But what we do know is, I am angry and I want these things stopped. Don't blaspheme the word of God. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you don't know enough about your Bible to be able to speak truth in difficult times, shut your mouth and point to people who do. It's time for serious people to get serious and get on our knees and pray. Get on your knees and study the Bible. Repent of your sin and recognize the fact that there are people out there who are ready to press in on the weaknesses. And God, I believe, is saying, please do. And that's where we are. God judging his people. Stand firm on the rock. I stand at the door and knock. Let me in and I'll come in with you. It's not just homosexuality, but that's a place it begins. It's also racism. There is racism everywhere. I am not one of the people who believe that black people can't be racist, that Indian people can't be racist. I can't even name a bunch of racists because it'll make me sound racist. Satan gets us just like that. And why? Because we're all racist and we don't know how to deal with it, with the gospel. Because we've allowed the world to define racism. And that's what's happening is the redefinition of everything. If you don't see it, wake up. You need to be woke on the right side of Scripture. We address these things with the weapons of the world. And we don't know what we're getting into. Because Satan is smarter and more deceptive and dirty and nasty than any of us. And we're pretty bad. But you have to know the word of God. And you have to know your high priest. And you have to be able to draw near to God the Father. Are you prepared to stand in the public square right out they then tore down some statue instead they have put you there they have tied your hands behind you they have put wet wood below it if you're lucky so you're killed by the smoke and not by the flames or they put dry wood and they put your hands behind your back and they say reject Christ your Bible and your church and we'll let you live are you willing to stand there and say no and sing his praises and then look out and say father forgive them they don't know what they do we're not ready for that. We're soft. <laughs> we are soft. I'm the first one to admit it. I'm soft. But God will build his church. We have a high priest who has entered into the heavenly places. We have a hope. But God has us living here now as a witness to the nations. We will end up in heaven. And if you can believe that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the Lord your God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself, then when those things come before you, you're just like, i got to go sometime. And Miss Mildred, who always has these little quotable things that she'll say from time to time, said, because she, she said, I'm not going to get through this one. She, she believes she's on her deathbed. 
you know, she well may be. She says, my last breath will be my best breath. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to be able to say that. My last breath will be my best breath. What happens if your last breath is, was it, what are you saying? What do we know? And I'm not here to give everybody a hard time. I'm just here to give everybody a hard time because God's given us a hard time. We're in hard times. And it requires serious in-depth, solid... I mean, look what... This kind of stuff produced the Puritans. Okay? I mean, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Divines, these people who were... You read their stuff, and it's just like... And it was watered down so everybody could understand. It's like, oh my gosh, how stupid we've become. I can't even understand what they're saying. It was written for the least educated people. But they were persecuted. And that produced a great faith. We've been praying for revival. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've been praying for revival. Just like in Habakkuk. And he sends the Chaldeans. He sends the Babylonians. Who's he sending to teach us? That you have to be on in Christ Jesus to have access to God the Father so you can see things for what it is. And, and a lot of times you won't understand. You just respond in a Christ-like manner. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Quit playing the victim. Quit being resentful for everything that's wrong. And look for opportunities to share the gospel and believe that the Holy Spirit is going to do great and amazing things. And it may be through your sacrifice of your life. I'm not saying we're at that point right now. I'm not saying we're going to get to that point. But it happens. It's not like this is just in the movies. This is the way the world works. So be prepared with a smile on your face. Heaven awaits. This is a temporary, light, momentary affliction. So when people see you, do they see the people that are known by the way we love one another and by the way we will stand on truth? Because we have truth on our side. We have truth on our side. But you've got to know it and you have to live it. And you have to be willing to let God's Holy Spirit do his work in and among and through us. Let's pray. Father God, we're going to come to your table. Pray, Lord that you will allow us, as we draw near to you, that we would have the ability to draw near to the world with a message of hope and love that may not be seen as hopeful or loving, but nonetheless, we pronounce truth out of love. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.